0: The book of Romans has been called the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. All right, I welcome you back to your seats. All right, as we get situated, and Mother's Day now in the books, as we say, It is safe to go back to our regularly scheduled programming, which is Romans chapter 11, and some of the more harsher realities of uh, rejecting the gospel. It's time to pick up where we left off. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention back to Romans 11, this marvelous and profound chapter on what you're doing in the nation of Israel and The implications of that with the church, where we fit, how they belong, and how you're working this wonderful, glorious plan. And we are looking forward to seeing that come to fruition, even in our lifetime, Father God. So uh, let us see these truths in new, fresh ways so that we'd be inspired to live closer to Christ As a result, in Jesus' name, amen. And so Paul's been taking some time here, three chapters here in the book of Romans, hasn't he? To talk about this great mystery, despite 1,400 years of biblical revelation and an unbelievable privilege and honor, the Jewish people being set up to receive her Jewish Messiah in fulfillment of Jewish promises and prophecies. He came to his own, but his own received him not. And so how are we to think of this? The great paradox of all paradoxes, (laughs) the gospel's 100% Jewish in all of its design, origin, and content. But 99.9% of the responders are not Jewish. And so Paul is going to take some time to talk about this um, this mystery that the rest of the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue has opened its heart to Israel's Messiah while Israel Uh, stubbornly even though God holds out his arms all day long the Bible says that his own people refuse to come to him but as we've been learning it is temporary and God is working uh, in small numbers in Israel as he always has been and he promises over and over and over again that his promise made to exalt the nation of Israel in the end Right before his appearing, in fact, when they turn to him as a nation, that precipitates his great appearing, that every eye shall see him. And so Paul here in Romans 11 is talking about this plan that God saw ahead of time that the Jews, his own people, would reject the Messiah and how he would use that to kick the door open and start worldwide evangelism to the nations. Another word for nations is Gentile. That's what the word Gentile means, which was always God's plan from the beginning. Well, the people of the Old Testament covenant called God's chosen people, it would seem, did not choose him. So what are we to make of that? And this is where we pick up. He's already been talking about it. He says, are all bets off now that the chosen people didn't come to the chosen one to receive salvation? Is God done with them? Answer. Verse one. Thank you for, for, you guys have been paying attention. Verse one. I ask again, this is about the third time, just in case people are going to say to you, uh, God's done with those people. He's got three chapters of saying, Is he done? No. Is he done? No. Is he done? Done? No. No. (laughs) I ask again, Did God reject his people? By no means. I'm a Jew. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah How he appealed to God against Israel, pretty low turnout, Lord. Lord, they've killed your prophets. All these Jews have torn down your altars. I'm the only Jewish person left, and they're trying to kill me. And what does God say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there's a smaller remnant chosen by grace. And by the way, if it's grace, then it's no longer by working your way. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, let's dig in. There's a couple paragraphs to follow. We'll walk through as we always do. And if you're taking notes, number one, a good one would be, it's not over till it's over. Or appearances can be deceiving. And it's not over till it's over. And that's really a good thing, not just for the Jewish people, but for us, right? Because some of God's promises uh, may seem to us to have failed. And actually, it's just a question of timing. God is not a liar, God is not a man who lies, nor is he a human being who makes a promise and then changes his mind. It's impossible for God to lie. So if you see a promise to Israel that he will exalt them in the end times, that promise is going to come to pass. Whether or not it seems like it's going to happen, whether or not it's been 2,000 years, God says, 2,000 years is just a couple days to me, folks. And so the end is what's important. And so this passage then is not just about Israel and what God's doing with the Jewish people. It's about reminding us of the faithfulness of God and how he keeps his end of the bargain, even when his people then and now don't. Salvation isn't up to you. You come to him, you get connected to Christ, done. And there's nothing you can do to undo that when God covenants himself to you through Christ or even his Old Testament people coming to believe in Christ through faith looking forward. And so we start off here. No jumping to conclusions allowed by just looking at the numbers and taking a roll call and doing your polls in Jerusalem. There's no way you can tell what God's doing because the kingdom of God, one thing Jesus said, it's within you. And it has to start within you before you will ever hope to see the outward manifestation one day as it will come in a historical way. And so, yes, it doesn't look good right now. It didn't look good, 2000 years years ago when at their hands their Messiah was handed over to the Roman authorities yeah so the gospel says yeah it doesn't look good because the Jewish people appear to be the bad guys and they were those Jewish leaders they should have known better and they did but they were envious they got offended they stumbled over the stone of stumbling as Jesus is called they repudiated that message They rejected the cross and the Messiah who hung on it. The miracles, they conspired to uh, crucify him and they're the ones who handed him over and the crowds who loved him on when the parade was coming through, when they caught wind that the leaders would persecute those who followed this Messiah, uh, they decided to turn and Uh, reject the message and reject him. So the crowds kind of followed suit. And also, uh, before we dive right in, uh, the Jews and the the leaders and their sons don't look very good in the book of Acts. So when Christ raises from the dead and sends his Holy Spirit, which is called the Spirit of Christ, into Christian-believing hearts to continue what he was doing 50 days earlier before Pentecost... Who's the bad guys? Who's always stomping their feet? Who's always calling 911? Who's always uh, trying to stop the gospel from going forth? It's the Sanhedrin again. It's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, along with the Jewish people who decide to follow suit with their leaders. We'll trust in our own goodness to get right with God. We don't need this Jesus fellow Right, we've got Abraham as our father, we've got Moses in the law, we've got Yahweh as our God, and we've got the promises to us as his nation. And Jesus will say, Yes, but I am the culmination of all of that. And if you don't have me, everything you just listed is stamped null and void because he is the manifestation of all things Jewish. All of Judaism comes together in the face of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, boy, Jesus told the Jews, hey, they kept saying, God is our father. And he said... "Uh," Actually, we come as a package plan. And, and he said that, exactly what he said. He said, you can't have the father and not have the son or the spirit because we are three in one. He didn't say it that clearly, but he did say, it's impossible for you to have the father, Yahweh, and not have his son because I and the father are one. Wow, and at that, they picked up stones to execute him. So they got the message there. And so, yeah, they were constantly doing this. And so that's what started this whole thing with they have been so doggedly through the years against the gospel, against Jesus, against all things uh, Christian. Uh, Therefore, is God done with his people? And he says a thousand times, no. So we look at that. He says, it's not over till it's over, right? And so, you know what he says? It's a little bit of an oxymoron there. Did God reject his people? That's meant to be funny. Did God reject his people? How can you have God and his people and rejection in the same sentence? And surely Paul is thinking of Psalm 94 and verse 14, where it says, plain as day, for the Lord will not reject his people people, he will never forsake his inheritance. I mean, the thinking is like, does a builder tear down his prized work that would a sculpture uh, destroy his own beautiful uh, creation? Why would God reject God's choice of them uh, negates the possibility of his rejection of them by merely his Choice, You see? And so he goes on and he says, there's two ideas here. There's always been a small group of believers. God has not stopped working with the Jews just because you can't see it and it didn't make uh, CNN news. Uh, God's working there. And he says, number two, one day the nation, and this is the big shebang at the end of the chapter, which we'll get to next week. He says, and by the way, the whole nation will come to know him. And so in the meantime, he's at work. So he says, you think God's done with the Jews? Hello, I'm a Jew. He says, now, if God was done with the Jewish people, he would unilaterally be done with all ethnic Jews. And I am both a, he says, I am both a Christian and I am both an ethnic Jew. So why would God do that if he were done With the Jews. And he goes on bragging about his Jewish heritage in in, uh, Philippians chapter 3. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to talk Jew? He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the best Pharisee there was. I mean, so much so that I would kill people like Christians, you know? So if God was done with the Jews, especially ones who were persecuting the church, wouldn't it stand to reason that he wouldn't call me to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Come on, think about that. So yeah, he's using 12 disciples. He's using Peter, and James, and John. He's using all these Jews. And the first Jews were Uh, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 of them were Jews and then 2,000 in the chapter that followed, chapter four actually. And so yeah, thousands of Jews responding, but compared to the millions, it looks inconsequential, doesn't it? Right? So God's not doing anything there and God says, oh yeah, I am. Even if it were one, God would be saying, to you guys it's nothing, but to that one or two, That 1%, God is keeping his promises. And one day, it will spread to an entire uh, nation. And so the next thing he says is that, is God going to reject those he foreknew? Well, that, that word does not just mean he knew about them being exalted as his nation in the end days, and reigning as the superpower of the millennial kingdom is Israel, where there will be 12 thrones and those apostles are up and running. We are working, reigning and ruling with Christ, but Israel will be 10 times the size that she is now. And those, those times are promised to come. And he has made that promise and he foreknew that but the word means to foreordain. So it means to know about it before and then to purpose with intent to do something about it. So he's saying, okay, first of all, they're his people, so he's not going to reject his people. Hello. And the second thing is he's using Jews all the time just because you don't see it. And the third thing here is is that uh, he is... uh, working toward the end to when all of them are going to come into right relationship uh, with him. So it's, he foreordained them is what I'm trying to say. And so here's God's promise to them in the Old Testament. And I'm going to save it for the close. I'm going to read the whole paragraph to him. But he makes a promise to them and he says, in spite of their bad behavior, I will never ever, ever, and he swears by himself, I will ne- they will never cease to be a nation before me forever and ever and ever. So it's hard to argue with that for sure. And so when God makes a promise, it's for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in good times and in bad and in sickness and health. And yeah, has it been? It's been 2,000 years of uh, sickness and it's been 2,000 years of trouble and it's been 2,000 years of bad times but as i said before two thousand years is a couple days to the timeless one and he says you just hold on you just see i don't tell lies i said i would exalt the nation and i will and in the meantime he says come on you look out there and he goes on there to uh verses two and three and he says, let's think back to when things looked really, really bad. Was God not doing anything with the Jews? He says, if ever there was a time of flagrant apostasy uh, when there were, it looked like no Jews were left, it would be 800 years earlier, uh, 1 Kings chapter 9 uh, there, when Israel, uh, it could have been uh, chapter 19, I should say, uh, yeah, Uh, Israel is in a spiritual uh, funk uh, because wicked King Ahab and his wickeder wife, if there's such a word, uh, Queen Jezebel, you know, they were the most wicked people ever to live in the Old Testament. Now, King Ahab and Jezebel ruined two perfectly good baby names because nobody names their kids Ahab, nobody names their kid Jezebel, This is our Jezebel. (laughs) You can call her Jesse for short. I don't think so. I think we name our pythons Jezebel or something else. Shall we move forward? Elijah, most of you know the story of this dramatic showdown with the prophets of Baal and shut them down. God did. And now, you know, Jezebel gets word that her... Employees, the sorcerers, were put to death, and she swears and she sends a message to Elijah and says, I swear I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. And now, uh, the poor prophet, man, he's a human being. He's been up all day dealing with the prophets and calling down fire and then he raced all the way to Jezreel and all of that. He's tired. He freaks out. He runs away into the wilderness. He heads down to Saudi Arabia where really the Ten Commandments were given down to Mount Horeb, Sinai, right? And so God sees him panting out of breath, panicked out of his mind and he says, Elijah, what's going on with you? And Elijah answers, oh, you have no idea. I've been so devoted to the Lord my God and and they, all your Jewish people, have torn down your altars. Verse three, they've killed all your prophets and I'm the only one left. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, so (laughs) now Paul is using this. A lot of commentators say Paul probably had a kindred spirit toward Elijah because you know Paul felt those feelings of being, I'm the only Jew left who loves Jesus, said, you know. And so what was God's reply to this guy? He says, I'm the only one left. The whole country went AWOL. I'm the last guy you got. And actually God says, I've got 7,000 faithful hearts who have not bowed the knee to that dirty Baal, filthy, Baal was the lord of sexual immorality. That was the god they worshipped there for the most part. Now, Razzled as he was at the end of all of that, at the end of his rope. I don't know, have you been like that? Where you say to God, I'm the only one in my school. I'm the only one in that class. I'm the only one left in Santa Rosa. I'm the only one in my family. I'm the only one in this church who, whatever. (laughs) Right? I mean, uh, the devil throws a pity party and we're the first to go. You know, we show up, you know, first in line with gifts for our own party. (laughs) Feel sorry for ourselves. And God has to say, listen up. It is never as bad as it seems. With God, how bad could it get if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live on board? How bad can it get if he's predestined all things to work together for your good? How bad could it get if nothing can touch your eternal life? How bad could it possibly be? Oh, really bad? I'm the only one, and they're gonna kill me, and oh, and things are never gonna get better. It's raining again. (laughs) And he says, let me give you 7,000 reasons for more hope than you care to believe right now. Because right now you're wrapped up in you. get out of you and you'll be able to see something a lot of people can't see. I'm at work. And I'll give you 7,000 reasons if you need them. But in Christ, we've got 700,000 reasons for hope and not to despair. To despair is to turn your back on God. As a Christian who has the Holy Spirit, stop it. Turn your mind and your heart on things above. And all of that nonsense will come into proper Perspective. And so he says, Don't let the poor turn out fool you. You just never know. Let me tell you a quick story. My dad got saved at 55, and it was one of those bam. He went from <laughs> night to day, right? And so uh, some books he was reading from Dallas uh, Seminary there. Uh, really touched him and really got him on the road to being a Christian. He wasn't even going to a church yet, but he clung to those books. So he decided to get on a bus and he called it his pilgrimage to Dallas to where he was going to go to the first Baptist church there, 10,000 people. Dr. Criswell, famous pastor there. And he said, I'm going to go forward and give my life to Christ there officially. So uh, Dr. Criswell... Gives the altar call. My dad goes down beelines, the first one. So Dr. Criswell says, Hey, wow, we've got a man here who's pretty interested in finding Christ. And my dad blurts out, I'm a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> and so Dr. Criswell says, Oh, I would like all his Jewish brethren to come and lay hands on him. And up from the congregation, my dad said, Two dozen at least gathered around with a gasp from Dallas uh, First Baptist because nobody knew. <laughs> nobody knew, yeah, once in a while you got a Greenbaum, you've got a Levinsky, you've got these Reinmans, you've got the names, right? But you don't know, right? Until what? God says, listen, I got seven thousand. Listen, look at all those Christians at First at First um, Baptist Church. And boom, boom, pop, 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 pop. God says, "I've been doing stuff." Listen, set your eyes on not what is seen, but what is unseen, for the things that you can see are temporal. But the unseen realities of the kingdom of God and his promises and what he's doing in your life, a lot of it is unseen. But that's why it gives you faith not to walk by sight, but to be able to say, God, I don't see it on the outside. But I know that my prayers are powerful and effective because you said so. And I know that even though there's a low turnout right now in Israel, you said they're gonna come in. And when they come in, we're gonna give you glory because you do not lie, you tell the truth. And so he says, there's always been a remnant from the beginning. And, and you know, you could a remnant is like a piece of fabric. You didn't need that much fabric. Whoops, you know, so there's a remnant piece. What are you gonna do with the throw it away? No, in human understanding. But the remnant in the Bible is precious. He says two or three is enough for God to get excited about. So a remnant has always been there from the beginning until this very day, and he can't resist right at the end saying, and by the way, these few and chosen didn't distinguish themselves, those 7,000, because they were really good Jews. They were really good at keeping the commands and really good at being kosher. Nope. Nope. You know how those 7,000 got saved? The same way Father Abraham got saved. They believed God's promise in a coming Messiah. And that put them right with God. So he can't resist saying, and by the way, you Jews are here, wow, 7,000 of the few, the proud, the brave, the Marines, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, you know, oh, wow, how did they get in? He says it again. He says, look, they weren't religious people. They weren't working, working, working. They weren't striving, striving, striving. They were trusting, trusting, trusting. And that's what put them right with God. And so he says, look, if it's free to get in, there can't be any charge because then it wouldn't be free. That's the idea. Grace and works Two ways to approach God. I'm a pretty basically decent guy or I'm a loser wretch with not a thimble of anything good to offer you. Those are your two choices. And the Jews for the most part said, no way we're taking the, not a thimble of goodness. Are you kidding me? We've got 613 laws. We don't eat certain foods. We don't work on Saturdays. We're working our way. God says, sorry. That's not gonna work. Verses seven through 10. Now let's take a look at that. Uh, because why are they massively lost? Why can you talk to a Jew till you're blue in the face and show them the scriptures and go, look, there's Jesus right there. And they go, what? I don't see anything. Why is that? How can this be? And he says, well, there's something supernatural being added to their self-imposed blindness. And let's look at that. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly by working, working, working to get right with God, it didn't obtain, but the chosen did. Meaning those 7,000 or anybody who comes to Christ are choosing the one choosing them. That's how we're elected. We're chosen. He chooses us. We choose him. Together they meet. And the beautiful thing called salvation comes of it. He says, and... While God has some coming to him and being saved and reconciled through faith and grace plus nothing, then you got the others who are rejecting it, fully knowing the truth. Others were hardened as it is written. So he combines two scriptures, one to focus on the eyes and one to, to focus on the ears. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that Uh, They should not see and ears that they could not hear to this very day. And then he says, and by the way, David (laughs) prophesies this. May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for the enemies of Christ and God. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs. Uh, bent over forever. Listen, there's a couple options. You get light or dark. If you don't like the light, you get dark. You get revelation and knowledge. If you don't like the revelation and the knowledge, you get ignorance, right? And emptiness. And you know what? If you If you want blessing and God carrying your burdens, you can have it. But if you don't want God to carry your burdens, then you'll carry your own. If you don't want to Walk in the light, then get ready for some darkness. And so when I read uh, before Mother's Day, I was was checking ahead of what's coming. So I read these verses out loud. May their table become a snare, a stumbling block, and repayment. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Can you see why I couldn't say happy Mother's Day after that? (laughs) a little strong for mama's day and so note takers we're in paragraph two rejecting the truth can be costly so God isn't a patsy God knows how to keep his promise to ethnic Israel and also deal with those who don't want to be a part of ethnic uh, Israel with its blessings he knows how to do both and so on one hand he will, he will give those over who want to make him their enemy. He will not force them, but he st- it doesn't negate the promise to the whole. And so let's talk about rejecting the truth. How can a nation be so blind that was so uniquely prepared? Now, listen, you know how James says, Let not many of you be teachers because teachers are going to be held to a stricter standard of judgment. So you might want to think again about wanting to be on a platform telling people the way it is because God will say because of what you knew you are held to a higher standard. Too much, to those much given, to those given much, much will be required. And so who who was given much? Oh, my word, those Pharisees and Sadducees, of course, these words are going to say, oh, God is going to work against you for working against him in full knowledge of the truth. 300 specific prophecies that these Pharisees and Sadducees, it was their full time job to memorize. They knew those 300 prophecies where he would be born how he would be born, where he would live, how he would minister, how he would die, where he'd be buried, how he would rise from the dead, how the people would reject him. It's all there and you know what blows my mind and just gives it away totally is that when the Magi come from Iraq following what Daniel left 400 years earlier, the Magi from Iraq come to Jerusalem following a star. And they ask King Herod, hey, we're here. Where is he? Where's your king? Where is he born king of the Jews? And Herod goes, I don't know. Well, Herod goes, let me call those religious guys with the robes. So the religious guy, guys in the robes come and they say, hey, where's the king born? Where's the so-called Messiah supposed to be born? And they all chant together in one accord. He will be born in Bethlehem of Judea because Micah chapter five, verse two says, from you, little Bethlehem, though you're just a tiny little town, oh, you're gonna be famous because the scepter will rise and a star will rise from you and there will come the ruler of my people who was from days ancient of old. Oh, they knew. And so they all got ready and they all went to welcome the king. Not. <laughs> they knew. There's the star. Whoa, it's over Bethlehem. And the Magi from Iraq, they go to see the Jewish king born. But the, those who are Jews who knew the scripture saying, you're going to get a king and he's going to come to you in Bethlehem. They know, they see the star and they say, we're going to slam the door shut in his face. We're going to slander him when he grows up. We're gonna pretend he wasn't born of a virgin. We are going to do our best to stop people from believing in him, even when the guards at the tomb say, you're not gonna believe this, but we're guarding it. We weren't asleep and two shiny men, the angels came and rolled it away and then sat on the rock and we fell before them like dead men. And they said, we'll give you a lot of money to keep This quiet, they knew. And so, of course, this Psalm 69 is quoted 16 times from the entire Psalm, different parts of it. 16 times in the New Testament. Why? Because it's a messianic Psalm, and it's Christ fulfilling, saying, listen, you think you crucified me? You think you won? Uh, Think again. He told them, they said, (laughs) right after he did one of his miracles, he cast out... uh, a demon and he he they they say give us a sign and a wonder we want to see a miracle and he said you know what the only sign you're gonna get is the sign of jonah think about that the sign of jonah is jonah went down for three days and then jonah got up he came up from the dead and he says, the only sign you boys are going to get is when I conquer you, after you think you killed me, oh, you're going to come to a tomb and find out, guess what? <laughs> you lose, I win, right? So he says, God sends them a stupor, eyes so that they cannot see. One writer said this, God will only send a stupor to someone who delights in being stupid. <laughs> All right? So if you don't want God to send you a stupor, don't be stupid. You said it right there. So Deuteronomy 29, about the eyes that they could not see, it's referring to when they saw the seas parted, they saw the 10 plagues, they saw the manna, they saw the pillar of fire, they saw it all. They struck... A rock and water came out of a rock. They saw it. Did it engender faith and love and devotion to their God? No. We want to go back to slavery. We miss the food we used to get in the slave pits. And then when Moses taken too much time, they, they, they fashioned for themselves golden calves. So when the next person tells you, when I see God, I'll believe Or when I see a miracle, I believe you could just say, dude, lots of people have seen a miracles in God's mighty hand and B, God in a human body raising the dead and still they don't believe. And so he says their bodies fell in the wilderness, those and God gave them and you don't want to see me fine. And then he says, you don't want to hear me. Uh, The second part in Isaiah 29 is is that when they were worshiping Baal, Isaiah and his contemporaries were saying, thus say the Lord, knock it off or you're going to lose the promised land. Knock it off or you're going to lose the blessings of God. Knock it off. Chosen is schmozen. It won't matter. God is easy. He'll take you out and put somebody else in. And so they refused to listen. And when you refuse to listen, you Here, more deafness. When you refuse to see, you see more darkness. That's it. God doesn't even have to do it. When Jesus said, when you have understanding and you apply my teaching, your little will become more. When you have my understanding, a little bit of understanding... And you ignore my teaching and ignore the truth that I make plain to your soul that even the little that you thought you had, you will lose that as well. So it's a natural atrophy uh, when we decide we are not going to listen to any correction or any challenge or any truth, but instead we prefer darkness. And if you prefer darkness, that's exactly what you're going to get. Ignoring the truth that God speaks puts you on a bad Path And so he says, uh, that's not the last word for Israel. And you know what? That both Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29, in their context, they both say, but in the future, things are going to change and you are going to be blessed and exalted both times, you see? So it's a temporary seasonal problem with Israel. In the end, uh, God's purposes will prevail, and so yeah, they're gonna have to suffer much, as Psalm 69 will say, now here's what he means by may their table become a snare, the table becomes a snare in this sense, the idea is you're at secure, you're secure at the table, you're laughing, you're joking, you're celebrating, and you think all is well, and all is good, and you know, cheers, right, But that very thing can become a trap, and it did. Because on the day Jesus was uh, crucified, those Jews did not want to be defiled. So when they took Jesus over to Pilate, to his little palace there, his little outpost, those Jewish men who were seeking to kill the Son of God or keeping religious laws and not going through the entranceway of a Gentile's palace, lest, and John tells you this, lest they defile themselves and not be able to eat the Passover supper. They, killing God's son, their own Messiah, keeping laws, being religious in hopes of going to the table. So that night, they go to the table. We got rid of him. Three o'clock, he's done. Yeah, we heard he's dead. He stopped breathing. They pierced his side. Woo, high five. Let's drink and let's pray and let's be happy. Their table, while they're high-fiving, while they're eating the lamb, while they're having fond memories of what they've just done, Jesus is conquering all evil and putting everything under his feet through his death and resurrection. Their table has become a trap. And their backs, he says, listen, you don't want me to carry your burden? You don't want me to take your shame and your guilt and all your efforts to please me? Fine. Anybody like that, may your back be bent always. The word is not forever meaning forever. It means always, continually. As you say, I'll do this. I'll carry it. I don't need you. Then you will be encumbered with some weight. And so... <laughs> That's what's going on there. Um, the stupor uh, leaves when we quit being stupid. And so the fact is, is that anybody who wants to come out of the stupor, God sees that and, and the veil will be lifted, you know? And it is kind of like a veil. And he says, so there's this little bit of a supernatural thing going on, but God's working as he is. Let's, I didn't want to finish there, with the backs being <laughs> bent forever. And so instead of making it a third point, I'd like to just close with the next couple verses because it, the nose of the plane does pull up, all right? So let's do that, and then we'll close. So for like the gabillionth time, did they stumble in that spiritual stupor and backs bent and the snares and traps and all of that so did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, God's doing a couple things. Salvation has come to the nations for one, two, to make Israel jealous or envious. But, and now Paul starts a whole new section, which we finish next time. A whole new section that says, now, if the Jews' transgression and their misstep Means riches for the whole world, and their loss, they forfeit a lot. But that brought riches to the nations. Can you imagine when they, the nation, becomes saved and Christian? What will that bring? So it's kind of a pretty cool closing argument. Let me show you the passage from Jeremiah 31 that just cuts to the chase. That says, "Listen, if you've ever heard the anti-Semitic." Theology that the church replaces Israel and that God has done with the Jews, which a lot of Christians believe, sadly. Hard to believe, uh, especially when you read these words. And take Romans 9 10 and 11. This is what the Lord says. Just want you to know who I am. <laughs> he who appoints the sun to shine. By day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Now he's talking. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, which they never will, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me, period. This is what the Lord says. And another thing. Only if the heavens above can be measured. Why don't you take out your little measuring tape and see if you can measure the heavens, all right? And the foundations of the earth below be searched out, get busy. Only if that could happen, would I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all the bad, in this context, the evil things that they have done. So God says, yes, they're always abandoning me. They're stiff-necked. I knew it before I chose them but I have made a promise to those people. And so over and over again in Romans 9, 10, and 11, he's saying, yeah, it looks bad. There's hardly any of them coming to Christ. Yes, they persecuted the church. Yes, they kind of in essence handed Christ over to be killed. But does that mean he's not gonna do this? No, he is going to do that. That day is coming. You can go back to those verses if you don't mind. Let me explain something to you. Replacement theology started with something called amillennialism. A means against or no. Millennial, you know what the millennial kingdom is. So back, oh, hundreds of years ago, the Catholics went into Israel and tried to convert them. Well, the spirit of stupor went out, right? No way, Jose, we're Jews. Get out of here, right? And so they kicked the Catholics out. The Catholics said, we've got to come up with a way to do away with Jeremiah's prophecies Oh, there's more than that. Oh, there'll be a super nation. Oh, he'll be on the throne. There'll be 12 uh, Jewish thrones, and and, and and the nations will come with their treasures to pay homage to the Jewish Lord. Oh, there's all of that. How do we get rid of that? Because we are ticked. So they came up with something called amillennialism. That means no millennium. Because if you have a millennium, you've got all these promises that Jesus talked about that that Paul is referring to right now so our millennialism means well what do we do with all those promises oh we're going to do something with the promises well we'll put them to the church church replacement theology and, and what do we do with the millennium a thousand years of uh, Jesus reigning and ruling from Jerusalem what do we do with that oh that's easy we'll just spiritualize it and say it started at the cross okay we've got a problem Where's the lion laying down with the lamb? If a lion lays down with the lamb, the lamb is going to be a lamb chop (laughs) because the curse has not been lifted. Where's there's no war? Where are people beating their plowshares, their bulldozers or their tanks, I should say, into plowshares? Where is that? You cannot have Romans 11 with them saying, yeah, they killed Jesus. Yeah, they rejected him. Yes, there's a curse on those enemies, but no. Is he done with them then? No, no, no. And then in verse 25, he says, by the way, the whole nation comes to know him and that precipitates the second coming. Martin Luther, beloved Martin Luther, took a millennialism to a new level and brought on the Holocaust How did he do that? What a beautiful man of God. Except in his late years, he went down to Israel. And he said, surely a man who writes all of these books. And Martin Luther was famous. We wouldn't be called Protestants without Martin Luther. Martin Luther goes down to the Jews and he says, let me tell you about your Messiah. And they said, let let us tell you about a spirit of stupor and a veil over our minds that God put there. so they kicked him out and he went home and in his old age and in his bitterness, he wrote a book. He wrote a book about the Jews are the enemies. And he clung to Catholic doctrine about all millennialism. And he said the Jewish houses should be torn down and every Jew eradicated from the world. And Adolf Hitler took that book and printed it and got it into the hands of all the German Lutherans. And up came, see? Even the head of the Lutheran church, which was like the state of of Germany, on Martin Luther's sad, bitter words about the Jews who would have converted when he came calling. And now you have People, The whole world is against Israel. The whole world. Because Satan knows if we wipe them out, then he's supposed to come back to a converted nation. If there's no nation to come back to, whoa, we win. And so he's put this supernatural hatred in the world for the Jew. And the only friend the Jews have, the only one, is us. Why? Because there are evangelical Christians that used to be that put enough pressure politically to stand with that nation, knowing that he who blesses you will be blessed and he who curses you will be cursed. And so thank God, thank God that we stand with God's people. And so the next time somebody says, oh, you know, the Jews, and roll their eyes, you bring them to Romans 11. Is God done with the Jews? Did they stumble beyond recovery? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, we're waiting for them to come back to the fullness of their gospel. And when they do, he says, if their misstep brought blessing, whoa, you wait until they're all calling out Yeshua because when they all do, he appears and it brings the renewal of all things. When his people finally come to know him in fulfillment, of his great promise. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that your truth prevails. Lord, some some people get it wrong. We get mm, tossed about by different emotions and waves of doctrine, but it's pretty clear if we just keep to the Bible. uh, You're not done with the Jewish people. You're not done with us. You're not done with the church. And you who started a good work in our hearts, though it seems like, whoa, nothing's much happening. Oh, no. (laughs) We'll be patient and wait because he who started it will finish it. Just as you said, you're a good father, you're a good God. Thank you for these truths. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.